You're listening to a Mint podcast brought to you by HD Smartcast. Hello and welcome. You're listening to The Sketch. I'm your host Shrudijit. I'm a Delhi-based journalist and the editor-in-chief of Mint. It is quite likely that you have used a Godrej product. If you have used Synthol soap, Goodnight mosquito repellents, Godrej refrigerators, or the famous Godrej locks or almiras, or live in a Godrej properties apartment complex, your life has been touched by this sprawling 126-year-old industrial conglomerate that is also one of India's most trusted brand names. For decades, and especially in pre-liberalization India. the godrej almira was the custodian of the most valued belongings in middle class indian homes i remember it was also the subject of a loving homage in the early days of mint by my erstwhile colleague mitra kalita it's a family owned professionally run business group with several publicly listed companies and has presence in numerous industries we tend to be more familiar with the consumer brands but it's also in agriculture chemicals construction and many others my guest today is the senior most operating leader and mentor of the godrej group mr nadir godrej is the managing director of godrej industries the group's holding company and chairman of godrej agrovet an engineer by training and educated at mit stanford and harvard Mr Godrej has been in senior leadership roles in the Godrej businesses his entire career. He is also someone who carries all of that responsibility and wealth rather lightly. He is famously a poet. If you haven't watched the joyous viral video of him reciting a poem about his brother Adi Godrej during a farewell event for him, you must. I hope to talk to him today about the evolution and future of the Godrej group, its various businesses, the next generation of godrej leaders timeless godrej values his poetry and much else mr godrej thank you so much for joining us today and welcome to the sketch thank you i want to start off by uh, asking you about uh, the various godrej businesses could you give us an overview of um, what's the evolution uh, of of the various businesses like right uh the group was started by my grand uncle Ardeshar Godrej who was a friend of Mahatma Gandhi and uh, one day he had to go to Zanzibar he was a lawyer and had to go to Zanzibar to fight a case and he was it, it was suggested that he should lie to save his client uh but he decided not to do that and gave up the law and a little while later he, he was talking to mahatma gandhi he was born in the same year as mahatma gandhi and he told mahatma gandhi you're talking about independence but this country doesn't have an economy and mahatma gandhi said what are you doing about it so that's how the godrej group started he tried surgical instruments and failed at that but then he made a very good safe and that was the first godrej product he also made locks and later on this seven, is in 1897 1897 several years later in the 1920s he decided to try and make a soap entirely from vegetable oil by the way i have a poem about these two achievements of his okay we would love to hear it 
And uh, so then we entered the soap business. From that, all our other businesses evolved from the safes and Almira side, which is all in Godridge and Boyce. And by the way, my cousin Jamshid heads Godridge and Boyce, and he's a couple of years older than me. Oh, I see. Oh, I didn't realize that. Right. Okay. Uh, Whereas everything that evolved from the soap business was managed by my side of the family. Uh, my uncle, Naval, uh, entered Godridge and Boyce uh, when he finished high school. My grandfather decided that uh, college is not useful. You go directly into the business and I will train you. But my father had very different views. He decided to pursue a PhD in industrial engineering, and he studied in Berlin uh, from 1933 to 1939 during the Nazi regime. He had to leave Germany in 1939, and he went back to finish his PhD 10 years later in 1949. He was doing his PhD in what? His PhD thesis was on making soaps directly from fatty acids. And as a consequence of that, we were the, one of the first producers of fatty acids in India. Instead of making soaps from vegetable oils, as my granduncle had originally started, and many people in those days used to do, which was a very complex process, because you had to, it was not easy to remove the glycerine. This is a very neat process. You split the fat into glycerine and fatty acids, react the fatty acid with sodium hydroxide to make a soap. What's more, you can use other alkalis like potassium hydroxide, which then we started making a shaving soap which is a potassium salt of a fatty acid. So because of my father, not only could we make different kinds of soap, we could also make fatty acids. And ultimately, we developed in the, uh, into the oleochemical industry, in which I also played a big role, along with the agribusiness. So this focus on um, science and R&D goes back to actually the leaders uh, of the Godrej group themselves. Yes, the leaders because Ardeshar Godrej, although he was a lawyer, right. he was a self-taught scientist. I see. Completely from books. I no see. education in science. I see. <laughs> and my father, of course, was a, a professionally trained PhD yes. in industrial engineering. Right. Very similar to what we would call chemical engineering today. But in Germany, they didn't use that term. Right. The chemical engineering evolved from the petrochemical industry. Right. Right, right. And, and you yourself trained as an engineer. I'm a chemical engineer. Right. Yes. You first went to IIT Bombay and then you yes, transferred I went, to... Yes, first actually I went to Xavier's College for one year. Okay. Then some of my friends were applying to IIT, so I also decided to join Agarwal classes. <laughs> <laughs> and then one day some of my friends came and said, the results are out, the results are on the envelope. I looked at the envelope. I couldn't find any number on the envelope. There were some numbers scrawled in pencil, uh, in pen on the envelope. I asked my servant who had picked up the envelope. He says, I think this is something from the post office. This can't be your rank. It said 360 or something like that. And some of my friends were around that, some were 180, so on. Then I went to visit a friend and he says, no, 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 it's on the address slip. So I phoned my servant and said, look on the address slip. So he said, sir, there is no number. There are only two. <laughs> Wow. wow. <laughs> so, uh, and I did chemical engineering at IIT for one year. So you were the second rank holder. Second rank holder at that time. But in those days, the IIT Bombay entrance was its own or it was the all India it IIT? Was, it was a common entry. But different IITs had different cutoffs. Right. And in those days, electrical and chemical were in great demand. Right. 
your rank number 2 was in the all india exam all india exam and i happen to be also second in the west zone because the first person was also from the west from zone, the west zone. <laughs> oh that's uh, rather remarkable and i find it quite charming that um, even a godrej was not spared uh, agarwal classes so <laughs> you know having to go through the um, the rigmarole of coaching i think i was uh, a little bit lucky to get that rank right. because one thing is i i used to go a lot to strand bookstall in those days and i found an american chemistry textbook which helped me a lot in the iit entrance exam even more than agarwal classes and i was very good at chemistry not so good at physics but we had to choose 7 out of 14 questions and the seven questions i could answer very well the other seven i had no clue fortunately we had to choose only seven questions and we had an english paper and i think i scored there over a lot of the competition because thanks to my grandmother and my mother who were both uh, they studied english literature both of them and my mother also studied philosophy so you were tutored at home and you had good that's grasp right of so i was always very interested my grandmother used to recite poetry she used to write poetry so that that helped me a lot and after one year i went on to mit right right and then your college life was subsequently in the yes in the and uh, my first degree i got from mit right in in engineering chemical engineering but i had a professor professor powers who was a great influence on my life very early on he told me to read double helix and then i took a course in biochemistry and that stood me in very good stead when we entered the animal feed business right yeah so uh, that's why although i didn't formally study a lot of biology i've always been very comfortable with biology genetic engineering and things like that yeah and then you went on to do uh, a business degree from harvard business school harvard business school and a masters in chemical engineering from stanford did business education uh, did formal management education really help you in subsequent help me a lot okay. because i was very good at science and so on but for me this was a very good learning experience in those days business schools not quite as much as today they almost want everyone to have work experience i had no work experience but when i applied uh, and stanford actually called me and said they were very keen to admit me but they thought it would be better to have work experience but in the meantime harvard admitted me and I, in my harvard essay and all i mentioned how my father would always talk business at the dining table and so i was quite familiar with business in a family business you do get to know that. i used to spend summers in the business in the laboratory learning some chemistry so harvard admitted me so i was one of the few students there one of the younger students there uh but without work experience right 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 uh, tell me what was it like to go to a uh, college in bombay uh, whether it is to agarwal classes or to iit bombay etc i mean you 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 have a very famous surname even back then and um, you know how did it contrast uh, going to college in america where you might have enjoyed relative anonymity just because you have a surname you don't get any particular special treatment in india I went to St Xavier's High School in which we had people from all walks of life so I was always uh, very happy to be with different kinds of people and my mother had a very democratic disposition she wanted us to treat everyone equally 
And that has always stood me very well in life because I found that with your colleagues, if you have open discussions, you don't pull hierarchy on people, you can get on much better with everyone. And when our chemical business went through a very severe crisis, one year we had a 90 crore loss, it was just by working with teams, having lots of meetings, listening to all their suggestions that we could pull the company out of this mess. So I've always felt that one has to treat everyone equally, one has to be extremely inclusive, and after all, that is the idea of India. Uh, when India became independent, uh, before independence, there were lots of divisions all over India. The British treated different people unequally, but we had this ideal of an equal country with all communities working together, and I sincerely hope we can maintain that ideal. Right. Did you have more pocket money than your uh, classmates? No, you? I had very little pocket money, and I spent all of it on books. <laughs> that, that, that sort of brings me to uh, another question that I wanted to ask you, which is, um, you know, when you think of the Godrej Group, one thing that really does stand out, uh, and, you know, I've, um, at least in, in my career as a, a journalist for about 15-odd years, um, the Godrej leaders, I mean, you and Mr. Adi Godrej, and even the younger generation, all of them conduct themselves in public with um, just impeccable dignity. There has never been any controversy around any of them. You will never hear, uh, you know, any kind of... What are the, You know, does that have something to do with um, what the values that are instilled at the dinner table in the family? Absolutely. And... There were values of corporate social responsibility from the very early days, uh, particularly my grandfather, Pirosha. Uh, one day, uh, we had two factories, both Godrej and Boyce and Godrej Soaps had factories in Parel, very cramped factories. And the workers lived in the area around in very bad conditions. Once my grandfather went to visit a sick worker and he was shocked at the conditions they were living in. So probably inspired by the examples of Cadbury and Levers Port Sunlight, he thought, why not buy land outside of Mumbai and build a factory there, build housing for the workers? And that's exactly what he did. During World War II, he bought the Vikroli land. People told him he was totally mad to go so far away. In those days, Vikroli must have been, yeah. <laughs> Yes, and now it's the center. <laughs> I can go from my office in 20 minutes to BKC, 30 minutes to the Taj with all the new highways and everything. Yeah, yeah. So it's quite central now. So it's a, a 3,500-acre parcel of land. I don't remember the exact <laughs> area. Yeah. But a lot of it was put in a trust where our mangroves are. And because my uncle Sorab was one of the first environmentalists in India, he also set up the WWF office in right. uh, Delhi which we donated, and it's named after my grandfather. And he was involved in the Save the Tiger project. And uh, he was more interested in all kinds of different causes than the business itself. In the business, he mainly took interest in marketing and public relations. Uh, but he was a member of 100 organizations. Some of that I found out only after they had condolence meetings for him after he passed away. So he was very, very active in all kinds of organizations, including environment, including French organizations, which he had asked me to take over, and I became the president of the Alliance 
Francaise. He was also the uh, president of the Alliance Francaise. Like him, I was a French speaker. He was also very interested in Japan and Japanese gardens. We have a small Japanese garden at our home. And he donated a bonsai garden to Kamla Nehru Park. Unfortunately, when they renovated Kamla Nehru Park in Mumbai, uh, that bonsai garden is gone. <laughs> Tell us about uh, your relationship with uh, your elder brother, Mr. Adi Godrej. He was more like a father to me because my father was a technical person. And a lot of my technical knowledge comes from my father. All my business knowledge comes from my brother and my business school education. My brother finished his education very fast. He was 21 when he got a combined engineering and master's in business from MIT. He came back at that age uh, in 63. I only joined the business in 76. He's nine years older than me, but I studied much longer than he did. <laughs> so uh, he, he was like a father to me. He introduced me to the business. And I was looking around all the businesses. And I worked with him in Godrich Soaps as well. But as I described in uh, uh, a poem uh, yesterday, and I can maybe read that bit out to yes. explain how our portfolio looks diversified, but what we have tried was something that we slipped into. For animal feed, this proved quite true. For compound feed, there seemed no need. Then Bueller sought out L&T. Together, they had tried to see if any market might exist. There were no takers on their list. Thus forced to make a clean swipe, they were then left with a prototype a discount customer was sought, and Godridge were the ones who bought. <laughs> so we entered the animal feed business, and quite by coincidence, I decided to work in the animal feed business because I found out that they were doing least cost formulation. You make a compound feed where you need so much protein, so much starch, so much amino acids, and linear programming enables you to find the least cost formulation. While studying chemical engineering, I had studied operations research, and I knew something about linear programming. Uh, so I said I'd help them out with linear programming, and then my brother asked me to look after this division. Later on, we went into other agribusinesses, including agrochemicals, in which I also played a role in the research. And then we went on to our oil palm business, which now has a very, very bright future. Originally, we went on to the oil palm business to produce palm oil for our oleochemical business. But we actually never used that oil palm in the oleochemical business because it was cheaper to use palm oil byproducts. And the byproducts come from refining and the Indian uh, palm oil, uh, there was n not that much palm oil and there were, the byproducts were in very small quantities. So we imported those byproducts, but we sold the palm oil for edible use. I have to say, you know, as a as a business journalist, it it sort of gladdens my heart to to listen to a poem with names like LNT and Godrej and animal feeds and compound feeds, not, not uh, you know themes that you normally associate with poetry, uh, but but that is uh, that is rather charming. Right, my early poems were on all kinds of themes, right, but including uh, politics, geography, science from the early days, business. And quite a few of my business poems are also quite scientific. This poem about animal feed has a lot of science in it as well. Right, right, right. right. 
wonderful uh, mr kotrej i want to talk about the uh, the endurance of trust that india has in the name kotrej um I, i suppose it subliminally possibly has something to do with the idea uh, that locks and almiras were a big you know so you could trust the you know safety um uh, but it is an incredible brand and 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 what uh, what does it take to maintain that trust over a century and a quarter of a century yes you have to maintain very high standards and you can't afford to cut corners because the moment you do that uh trust falls and once trust is lost it's extremely difficult to regain so it is a big challenge it is a big challenge and we must make sure that we don't fall into temptation to take shortcuts yes uh, it's very interesting that this has been studied carefully by e- economists they've done game theory simulations and they found that when you get a stray customer often people tend to cheat them but when you have a regular customer you very quickly learn to have very very high levels of trust and if you want to have a sustainable business you must the people must have trust in you and you have to have high standards to maintain that trust it's as but, simple as that absolutely but but when you have a lot of businesses and as you as you talked about a year when you made a loss of 90 crore in one business so when there are some businesses say that are not doing well isn't there always a temptation to say you know let's cut costs pretty uh, drastically and that is when things begin to fray right that is when some compromise begins to happen which then shows up you know in um, suboptimal ways right how do you resist that like that balance between you know financial prudence and quality right in this case what happened was that we set up this project to make natural alpha olefins now that was always a little bit of a challenge because alpha olefins were mostly made from the petrochemical route in fact my father tried to make alpha olefins by the petrochemical route it was an industry wide initiative levers we all of us joined hands to do that but the government refused in those days in the 80s to give us a license to import the technology so then my father had a brain wave of trying to make it out of vegetable oils uh but it was rather uneconomical to do so but the intermediate fatty alcohol was routinely made from vegetable oils so what i had to do was to make fatty alcohols unfortunately when we designed the plant we couldn't make pure cut fatty alcohols which were necessary to order to market them so we had to put in extra equipment to move the pure cut alcohol so the transition was very difficult but once we made those investments and we developed international markets there was no market for fatty alcohol in india once we started exporting the business became successful but it was a big challenge to do that so the only way to is not cost cutting it is to repurpose the business that takes time but is eminently doable the godrej group i mean combined uh, is today about i'm i think 10 billion dollars in revenue i don't have the <laughs> exact number it is thereabouts um it's a, it's a multinational conglomerate now it is you know 28000 uh or employees it is by any metric or means a rather large and sprawling uh, business group uh, when you were in college obviously it would have been relatively smaller uh, did you foresee that uh, you know this is the scale of the opportunity this is where we were going to get to um, at any point no in the 76 when i returned it was in the emergency and it was a difficult time in fact 
I was thinking of staying on in America for a while, but my brother says it's emergency, it's difficult times to come back. And so I did come back. And then with the license Raj, things were very difficult. But once liberalization happened in the 90s, liberalization was both a huge opportunity and a big challenge. On the one hand, you are now f- much freer to do a lot. On the other hand, you were likely to have much more competition. So one of the things we did was to have joint ventures. Fortunately, we learned a lot from our joint venture partners, from GE. We learned lots of management practices. From Procter & Gamble, we learned lots of uh, good manufacturing processes and things like that. And over time, our partners decided to go their own way, and we were able to buy our businesses back. We learned a lot from them, and we survived that competitive times. And then we, our businesses grew very rapidly. So after liberalization, we knew that there was a lot of potential in India. Before that, it didn't look very promising. Promising. <laughs> you know, surely uh, over the years that, um, uh, you know, you and your brother, Mr. Adi Kodrish, have worked together, uh, there would have been areas where uh, you had different points of view. Uh, what might those have been? And then how did you resolve those? We rarely had different points of view. And Adi was extremely experienced and very efficient. He was also, as I mentioned in the poem, very, very organized. And I'm not all that organized. In fact, when I was studying for IIT, my desk used to have a lot of clutter. And my father says, you'll never do well in this exam if your uh, desk is so cluttered. So then finally, when I came second in the entrance exam and I pointed it out to him, said, if your desk had been neat, you would have been first. <laughs> that's, a, that's a classic Indian parent uh, you know, situation. So, in that way, we were very, very different. But that's I think right. we were also very, very complimentary because I knew more about technology than he did, like my father. He knew more about business than I did. So we rarely had uh, disagreements. Sometimes we had discussions about one who had a different way of thinking, but very quickly in the discussion, we would come to a consensus. But you never had a difference of opinion about where to invest or which areas to allocate capital? No, no. Entering the properties business was his idea. And his thinking was more or less like what you said. We have a well-known brand. There is very little trust in this business. Yes. There is potential for a trusted brand. And he decided to enter the properties business. Uh, and he looked after it for many years until my nephew Pirusha came back. And he was quite involved in the yes. properties business. Yes, yes. That's actually remarkable thinking that, you know, in a sector where there is trust deficit, and if you're owner of a trusted brand, you know, maybe there is an opportunity to enter. And right. The other thing, and you're, I think, absolutely right. I think Mr. Pirosha Godrej has also done a tremendous job in expanding very, very rapidly uh, Godrej Properties, which is now a very successful business. Um, what I also find very interesting is that uh, while in real estate, most uh, large builders tend to be city-specific. Yes. Uh, Bangalore has its set, set of builders, Bombay has its set of builders, and Delhi has its set of builders but rarely do they are they successful across cities and Godrej Properties is a notable exception I mean it is a it is in many cities it commands a premium in uh, you know almost everywhere Uh, is that all a consequence of uh, the brand? I think so because the brand was a nationwide brand it made sense for us to go to different areas 
some builders sometimes had access to land in a certain area and they used that to build their business. But we built our business on brand. We often, in the early days, uh, we didn't acquire land at all. We worked with joint venture partners. Nowadays, we do acquire land. But we do it at market prices in any of the good markets that we want to be in. We are only in big markets, but with a geographic spread. Right, right. Um, and, um, well, I, I suppose the one big issue or, or rather one big problem in the real estate market is also uh, when you put down an advance for an apartment, uh, you're not quite sure if it'll get completed. And when it's a Godrej property, I suppose, or rather, you know, with many large builders, you can, yeah. you can be trusted. Yes. You can trust yes. that there is sufficient capital and it will get completed. Um, let's talk a little bit about your um, agribusiness. And, right. and you are very closely involved in it. Um, what are the problems facing Indian agriculture? The biggest problem facing Indian agriculture is the very high number of farmers and the very small land holdings. So we can't get the advantages of scale in Indian agriculture. But this is less of a problem today than in the past okay. because in the past all industry depended on scale. For manufacturing, that was very important. In chemical engineering, we had the famous rule of two-thirds power. If your capacity increases by a certain amount, the costs go not by the same amount, but by the two-thirds power of that amount. So your costs per unit actually come down. So there was a big uh, emphasis on scale. Reliance built their whole empire on scale. Dhirubhai would say it's stupid to have a non-world scale plant. People would say, where is the market? Create the market, he would say. Once you have a world-scale plant, you have low enough costs to create the market. But now it's all about network effects. And what Indian agriculture could never get by scale, it can get by network effects. For instance, uh, oil palm farmers have small areas, but we are connected to all of them. We have digitized it. We have geotagged it. We can give them advice. Uh, they can share implements. Uh, we can do research and tell them that special fertilizers need to be added to increase the oil content. So they do not have the disadvantages of scale because in a sense, our entire area is one farm, even if it is owned by different farmers, because it can be managed more or less like one farm. So network effects can overcome the disadvantages of scale and this is happening more and more in Indian agriculture. Uh, Omnivore is fund on which I have been on the advisory board has actually financed some companies who provide these network effects to farmers in selling their produce, sourcing their inputs, giving them advice, doing soil testing. So I'm hoping that network effects will overcome the problems of scale. And I'm also hoping that gradually more and more young people will leave the farm and do other things, or they will do much more scientific agriculture and improve the yields, in which case you can manage with a small farm, especially with growing trees, horticulture. A small farm is not a disadvantage. And uh, several of us in the agribusiness have formed an organization called Future Agricultural Leaders of India, or FALI, where we train ninth and 10th standard students in farming techniques and scientific thinking. Many of them become scientific farmers. Some of them join other agribusinesses. 
and some of them even go on to college and become scientists or or MBAs. Uh, either which way, they have a better life on the farm or off the farm. Wonderful. Uh, you mentioned Dhirubhai. Um, who are the Indian or global business leaders you've been inspired by? Dhirubhai for his emphasis on scale and Mukesh for going into all kinds of new industries. Uh, internationally, particularly the businesses that are socially responsible and even thinkers like Michael Porter, who greatly influenced us in setting up our Good and Green program, which we set up in 2010. In fact, it was my niece, Nisaba, who uh, organized for Dasra to do a study. And we actually interviewed all our people, and they were all very enthused with the idea of doing good and being more green as a company. Later on, when mandatory corporate social responsibility came on, uh, I was very involved in the Good in Green program and in the corporate social responsibility program. So uh, compulsory spends we do on uh, green programs, and a lot of it is on training. We trained beauty salon workers and later on entrepreneurs. We found that more people were interested in being entrepreneurs than actually working in the field. And we provided them with entrepreneurial education as well as the technical education on how to run their business. And we do a lot of watershed projects. We plant trees. All this helps the localities in which we work as well as helps us become a greener company. So we strongly believe in Michael Porter's idea of shared value. You do good to society and you do good to the business. And then you're automatically led to doing businesses that help society. Uh, you spoke about Dhirubhai and uh, uh, Mr. Mukesh Ambani. Uh, did you uh, know Mr. Dhirubhai Ambani personally? No, uh, but I have met Mukesh and Anil several times. And my brother used to be a neighbor of Dhirubhai and he was very friendly with Anil uh, and Mukesh as well. In Kaf Parade? No, before they moved to Kaf Parade, they were in Ushakiran. Ah, right, 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 right. right. Um, you spoke about the role that uh, Nisaba Godrej played in, in, in setting up some of your initiatives. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the uh, next generation of this very bright galaxy of uh, leaders? Right. I mean, there is uh, yes. Nisaba, Tanya, Nisa Nibash. is the right. chairperson of Godrej Consumer Products. Yes. Pirosha is the chairperson of Godrej Properties, uh, Narika is in uh, Godrej and Boyce, right. and uh, all of them have had business educations. My son Burgess, his MBA also from Harvard Business School, and his bachelor's and master's from Stanford, so he went to two of my universities. He was also admitted to MIT, but he preferred going to Stanford. And my wife is from California, so she also liked the idea of them being near her family. So the, uh, all my sons studied at Stanford. Right. Are your sons involved in the business here? Burgess is. He, okay. He's here today because we had this Klafmar convention where I read out this poem. Right. And I've just come from there. And Burgess is going to come and pick me up. We are right. returning to Mumbai after this. Right. What business is he involved with here? Godrej Agrovet. He's now the CEO of the crop protection business. Right, right, right. Um, 
on uh, consumer products um, it's been again a pretty tremendous success story has a long legacy um, what has been the international expansion like and do you intend to go into more countries or what does that global play look like right the global play happened mostly on my brother's watch it started off quite by accident uh, chance acquisition of a company in the uk uh we subsequently sold that company but the uk company introduced us to a similar company in south africa once we went to south africa we felt that our learnings in india could be very useful in developing countries so we bought several african companies then we bought a us based company but more thinking of the african market because this us based company made products for black hair so those products could be extended to the caribbean and to africa as well so that's why we bought that then we bought two latin american companies one in argentina and one in chile and then an indonesian company which funnily enough was in household insecticides the person had worked for bayer for many years and then he left to set up his own company there was a german he had come to india and he stole our brand hit and he introduced it to indonesia we had not registered it outside of india so technically we couldn't say that it was a theft but then when he decided to retire and sell his business uh we bought it <laughs> so we got the brand back and we developed other businesses in indonesia and we find that it was a good idea to be in developing countries as challenging also several african countries we have a lot of foreign exchange problems and forex controls like we used to have in india in the past uh but generally speaking it has been quite a good experience right now the developing world faces a lot of challenge after the russia ukraine war the commodity prices shooting up now of course the commodity prices have come down so it's not as bad as before but there are a lot of these challenges in these economies we are fortunate that india is doing better than developing countries and it's doing better than developed countries as well and right now even better than china we spoke about the next generation of godrej leaders what do they uh, seek your counsel in and what is in general your advice to them uh, right uh, both my brother and i have the long term view so we urge them to look at the long term maintain the high levels of trust and all of that on business development etc their management graduates they are very good on that but we try to teach them on the values and how you can continue to have a sustainable business right. and are you pleased with all of them we are very pleased with all of them um you're a f- mostly family owned business but uh, you know run uh, professionally with a lot of uh, senior professionals very respected industry figures um what is your approach to picking uh, management talent or you know professional talent uh, what do you look for in leaders what do you look in promoting them and how do you sort of foster as you previously said you know consensus and you know yes. take people along so those are the kind of values that everyone has to be treated well the management style has to be very inclusive in the old days manufacturing was often run like a military operation general motors 
was run like that. But now we see that in the IT industry, in all modern industries, the model is more like a university. So we have always tried to be more like the university model, where you trust people, you rely on them, you don't order them around, and uh, you constantly have a dialogue to decide what to do. So we want to promote those kinds of management values. Right, right. Mr. Godrich, when you look at the, uh, the pre-liberalization landscape of um, uh, major industrial groups, um, you know, Godrich is, of course, very much uh, right up there. Um, and your group continues to be known for, you know, trust and the values that we have spoken about, whether it comes to sustainability or, you know, treating people right and all of that. Now, many, some of your peers, and in fact, many of them, uh, have been much more aggressive in investing and growing, and many of them have, you know, financially speaking, um, expanded uh, much, much bigger. Do you feel that, um, uh, I mean, is there a case to say that you could have been more aggressive too as a group? One could always argue that, and we haven't been a lot in uh, new age industries, Though we did set up Godrich Capital recently, which is developing very well. And we are, although we are not going into new age industries, we are trying to bring in digitization and things like that in our existing industries. Like I described in Godrich Agrovet, where both in the animal feed business and in the oil palm business, we are doing a lot of digitization. Uh, and... The oil palm business is a very traditional business, but I see a very bright future for uh, oil palm in India. India only produces about 400,000 tons of palm oil, and we import 8 to 9 million tons of palm oil. And there's huge scope for expansion. The government has got a new policy whereby they want to encourage farmers to greatly expand Recently, in the last three weeks, we have planted 2.5 lakh saplings in 10 states. And we see that there will be very rapid growth in this. And India will, over time, gradually become self-sufficient. Unfortunately, it takes five years for the tree to grow. So this <laughs> is a long-term project. Right, right, right. right. Um, you have really been, uh, I mean, you've had a ringside view to India's growth uh, and, you know, we've had a pretty good time over the last uh, 30 odd years uh, in terms of economic growth. Um, there is now a lot of talk about India becoming or achieving levels of income that are of uh, developed nation level right. incomes by uh, 2047. Um, what is your outlook? Are you optimistic about India's growth story? Yes, but... If the whole world doesn't grow, it'll be difficult to maintain these growth rates. And we do have to modernize our industry. And as we become a developing country, we need to open up the economy further. We still have a lot of foreign exchange controls. Recently, there were these restrictions on credit cards, restrictions on remittances abroad and things, which I think doesn't seem all that sensible for a country that is aspiring to grow very fast. Another thing we need to have is have more inclusive growth. Uh, education needs to be widespread. You can't expect people to prosper if they don't receive a very good education, nor can you have a very rigid education. Our education system seems to be very rigid. We are teaching people how to learn facts 
facts that they forget six months after the exam, maybe three months after the exam. Some people would say the morning after the exam. Uh, we need to teach people how Sometimes to... even the morning before the exam as well. <laughs> I think Indian students are very achievement-oriented and I think they can remember things till the exam. Uh, we need to give many people more opportunities by a broader education system and not a rigid syllabus. They need to read things outside the textbook. The textbook should be pretty free, but that doesn't matter if people are reading many, many things and not reading textbooks. We don't care what the textbooks are. So I think we need to do that to, um, for the economy to improve and for everybody to participate in the economy because it's no use uh, having a few startups becoming unicorns and successful businesses being successful but the rest of India not being carried. What is your approach to conflict resolution? I mean, you know, surely, I mean, you're, of course, a very senior and respected leader, so surely people don't come to you and, uh, you know, say that I... Um, or maybe they do. But obviously, throughout your career, um, there would have been situations where you want to get your way, but someone has a different point of view or there is some amount of conflict. Um, what is the secret to resolving it amicably? Talking and listening. Right. <laughs> Always the solution. Because if you don't understand what the other person's uh, objection is, it's very difficult to counter. And usually it's not my way or your way. You have to listen and find a consensus middle path. Because there are legitimate concerns that people are expressing. And you have to listen to them. And you can achieve what you want to achieve better by listening to those concerns and finding a slightly different path whereby those concerns are taken care of. But ignoring those concerns is no way to proceed. You have to address them. You have to address them. Absolutely. Even if it is to say that, hey, um, I hear you, I understand your concerns, but at this point, this is what we'll need to do. And no, I, I think if you carefully listen to the concerns and both of you together find a solution to address the concerns, you will be on the same page. That will almost always happen. Let's talk about uh, uh, your poetry. Uh, one has been uh, <laughs> very charmed by, you know, as I said previously, uh, your recitation during uh, Mr. Adi Godrej's farewell. Uh, I also got to, uh, I was at the Madhya Pradesh uh, Investment uh, Summit where uh, you were uh, uh, one of the uh, key speakers and your entire speech was a poem, uh, in fact. Um, so how did uh, your uh, engagement with poetry begin? Right. I will start off by reading a poem I wrote about my mother on her centenary, but it also talks about her parents. And I'll read the part about her parents. Her parents are the starting gate, the major part of her fate. My granny, Mama, was named Shirin, was always calm and never mean. Her name in Persian just meant sweet. Quite apt for such a dulcet treat. A British teacher in her school, who sized her well, she was no fool, quite cleverly tweaked the spelling to serene. And there's no telling if character led to the name or vice versa. All the same, serene indeed was stately calm for a weary soul, a soothing balm, a freedom fighter for the nation, 
and poet for the cause of liberation. With great verve she would recite. I still recall that glorious sight. A love of literature was kindled there. A love that mother would also share. She also sometimes took to verse for greeting cards that were terse. But then the art that brought her glory was a different medium, the short story. In all her subjects, Serene was bright, except for maths, which was her plight. <laughs> Professors then were mostly Brits. A stereotype sometimes fits. The only Indian was professor of mathematics. Don't you scoff. In every subject, Serene did well, except for maths, where her grades fell. Professor Dastur's pride was hurt. He had to give Serene a spurt. He soon went on a remedial mission and called her in for home tuition. His dapper nephew was on the scene and quick to notice young Serene. His proposal quickly carried and very soon they were married. <laughs> so my oh, grandmother yeah. was an influence and my mother also, as I said, used to write these poems on greeting cards and things like that. So I got in the habit at an early age. And then sometime in the 1980s, once I met a couple of people from a missionary cult and I didn't agree with what they were saying, so I wrote a poem about it <laughs> and handed it over to them. And then one day, I was very active in the Harvard MBA Alumni Association and we had set up an award, which later became the Economic Times Harvard Business School Alumni Award. Subsequently, Harvard Business School alumni withdrew and it became the Economic Times Award. And one day I was asked to give a vote of thanks. And I decided to deliver the vote of thanks as a poem. And I started by saying, a vote of thanks, that thankless task. <laughs> I don't know why they asked some silly fool to make a speech. <laughs> so... The poem was a big success. It happened to be in Calcutta. And then I said, why don't I always write speeches in verse? <laughs> so since then, you, you've started very, very often. Very often. And yesterday, I had a whole speech on animal husbandry. <laughs> in in, <laughs> in verse. Challenge, including <laughs> the technology in animal husbandry right, right. and the challenges against meat and right. uh, plant-based proteins, cultured meat, all of that was covered in the poem. Right, 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 right. But do you also read poetry seriously? Do you have a I do, okay. I do. And I, in the past, uh, I used to have poetry anthologies, which I would read. I was particularly impressed by poets such as Keats, Shelley, Byron, Lord Tennyson, and... Another big influence was Vikram Seth. I see. Yeah. And I'll read a poem which yes, I wrote about Vikram Seth okay. very early on. And that caused me to publish this book. And what happened was I was studying Russian at that time. Okay. And we were starting business with the Soviet Union. Uh, there was a lot of rupee trade with the Soviet Union in those days. Unfortunately, it didn't last very long because I went to, uh, to Russia during the last days of the Soviet Union and then that trade uh, stopped. But I was uh, learning Russian and uh, my Russian teacher said it's the anniversary of Pushkin and we are going to have an event and I'm going to call Nisim Ezekiel 
to be the chief guest, and I want you to say something as well. So, uh, I was thinking about it. I was thinking about Pushkin, and then I read an article in Span magazine about the influence of Evgeny Onegin, Eugene Onegin, on Vikram Seth. He wrote Golden Gate in Pushkin sonnets, exactly like in this book. And I said, why don't I write a poem in Pushkin sonnets on this connection? And I'll read you a bit of this. And in the poem, there are quotations from Vikram Seth's as well. From Golden Gate? Or? Oh, yes, from Golden Gate. Right. These first four lines are a quotation from Vikram Seth. What is translation on a platter? A poet's pale and glaring head, a parrot's screech, a monkey's chatter, and profanation of the dead. So quoth our eminent translator Nabokov, to my mind a traitor, not to the sense but to the flair that English speakers could not share. Before Charles Johnston's new translation, perhaps it's not as erudite, but it has verve and it has light. It truly is an imitation of Pushkin's style, his slang, his rhymes, and I have read it many times. You may well ask, what's the connection? One day, while Vikram Seth did browse, amongst a bookstore's wide selection, diverse translations did arouse his curiosity. He has stated, in Russian, he's not educated. So he decided he'd compare and see how both of them would fare. And one he found, he was just reading, page after page without a rest. No doubt he thought it was the best. And which translation was succeeding? Charles Johnston's one, there was no doubt, as you, dear reader, have found out. It is now time for a description of Vikram Seth, which I could write, but I do feel his own inscription might be the best for me to cite. In 52, born in Calcutta, eight pound one ounce was heard to utter, first rhyme, scat mat, at the age of three, a student of demography and economics. He has written from Heaven Lake, a travel book, based on a journey he once took through Sinkiang and Tibet, unbeaten at last by Wanderlust and Rhine, he keeps specific standard time. So I wrote this whole poem, Connection Between Pushkin and Vikram Seth. And after that, I've often written in Pushkin sonnets, not usually when I'm making speeches, because it's too difficult to write speeches in there, though I did write a poem about Zoroastrianism in Pushkin sonnets. Right. Mr. Godrej, does writing all this poetry come easy to you? I mean, there is a lot of rhyming, there is a lot of focus on meter. Um, are you one of those writers who agonize over every line or it, it flows and it comes easy to you? Yeah. When I'm writing a Pushkin sonnet, it's a very complex rhyming scheme. Yeah. And there are also alternating uh, feminine rhymes and masculine rhymes, which in the early days, like in this poem, I remember to get right. Then sometimes I wrote Pushkin sonnets where the form was exactly as required except for these alternating feminine, which are two-syllable rhymes, and masculine, which are one-syllable rhymes. So uh, Vikram said jokingly called that not a Pushkin sonnet, but a Pushkin son, because there were no feminine rhymes. <laughs> <laughs> so, and in my poem, when Vikram Seth came to visit us, I talked about a Pushkin son. Right, right. <laughs> Uh, now again, I'm writing Pushkin sonnets, thanks to Vikram Seth's correction. So those take time. But when I'm writing a speech, it's, in, it's also in tetrameter. Of course, Shakespeare wrote pentameter. 
but Pushkin wrote Tetrameter, and Tetrameter suits modern English better because it's a shorter line. So I write in Tetrameter couplets, and couplets are very easy to write. Sometimes when an unusual rhyme comes up, you take an unusual path, and that actually helps the creativity because it's, if you were writing prose, you wouldn't have said that. <laughs> So uh, these kind of speeches I don't find difficult. Right. And I can now even repurpose past speeches into new speeches. Right. Right. Sometimes right. I can take from five or six different speeches, right. add some new items and make a whole speech which makes complete sense. Right, right. The, the, the body of work is now substantial, so you yes, can repurpose. Yes, so and, I can, uh, right. Yeah. Self-plagiarism right. is permitted, I believe. Completely, completely. <laughs> Um, do you do you write in the car? Do you write on planes? Do you write at your uh, desk? Yes, sometimes on planes. Uh, occasionally in the car. Sometimes while walking. In the old days, it was on paper. Now it's on the iPad. <laughs> right. Right. Mr. Godrej, uh, you're into poetry. Uh, you're a technologist. Uh, you're, there's a lot of focus on philanthropy and sustainability. Uh, but you're also a seriously wealthy man. Um, what does money mean to you, and and how do you spend it? Do you, uh, you know, do you have attachment to material possessions? Do you, um, are you into spending on certain kind of things? Tell us about your relationship. With yes, money. I'm not uh, particularly an art collector or anything like that. Sometimes while moving into a new house, buy some artworks and so on. Uh, I uh, buy a lot of books. Nowadays, I get gifted a lot of books. So, and uh, uh, material possessions don't add to happiness at all. Everyone knows that good health and good friends are the major reasons for happiness. And uh, we have a foundation and we are going to now refocus our foundations uh, to do more sustained charity, uh, really commend Azim Premji, who set up a foundation which is working mainly on education. It's a really worthy cause, and he can make a huge difference to India. And also, businesses themselves can do a lot of good through corporate social responsibility and through good business practices and to socially useful businesses. It's very easy to have a socially useful business that is also profitable. And all these things uh, increase general welfare. And people are happiest when they're working to increase general welfare, in my opinion. And material possessions, if anything, uh, cause unhappiness rather than happiness. Obviously, you need a comfortable lifestyle. You need to eat healthy. You need to exercise. And you need to spend a little bit of money on doing all these things. But there are many things you can do for almost free, like swimming or walking. You have to spend a little bit of money if you want to go to a gym. But uh, these are the things that make you happy. Right, right. Do you work out? How do you? No, I don't work out, but I do walk and swim. Okay. Right. And I've been a swimmer all my life. A couple of times I swam from one island to another. Uh, once in the Maldives and once in Fiji. From one aisle to the other. Yeah, but it was maybe half a mile away or something like well, that. That's, yeah. still, that's still a, a serious and distance. Once I had open sea, one mile swim, I went with Dr. Tolani, who was a good friend. He was in his 60s and I was in my 40s at that time. 
and I made it a little bit further than him, but we did have a boat accompanying us. I was about to ask. <laughs> yes, we had a boat accompanying us, yeah. but it was a challenge for the boat to find me finally. They picked up Dr. Tolani and then they were looking for me. <laughs> In the course of your work life, um, obviously, a lot, um, lot of responsibility, a lot of capital, a lot of big businesses. Um, did you have a lot of stress? Do you have a lot of stress? How do you deal with stress? No, very little stress. Stress. Writing poetry helps to relieve stress. Right. My family helps to relieve stress. Unfortunately, I think I stress out my wife and she relaxes me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, as a couple, it works out for you. For me, Maybe not for Unfortunately, <laughs> I have to work harder on de-stressing her. <laughs> right, right. Um, can we talk a little bit about your focus on R&D? I mean, there is a research and development center, both in your name as well as in Mr. Adi Godrej's name. Um, Tell us about uh, yeah. R&D. The part of business that I've always enjoyed the most is R&D. And I don't go into the lab and do research, but I meet with the R&D teams, have a review meeting, suggest the next experiment and things like that. And I find that absolutely fascinating because it drives the business into new directions. And a lot of our growth has come from our R&D and it's very enjoyable. And that's another reason why I'm not stressed out. Uh, when we had all those severe problems, the very fact that we could turn it around by working all of us together and increasing the R&D and putting up new plants, all that was helped to de-stress. So when you have a problem, you have to confront it. You have to confront it in a united manner and never try to do things single-handedly because that's when you develop stress. But when you do it as a team... The stress is distributed and the camaraderie itself removes the stress. On the uh, restructuring of, of family holdings, uh, that process has been on for a while. It seems to be quite complex. Uh, where does it stand? Um, are they, I mean, is it taking time because of its complexity? Are there any disagreements? What can you tell us about? We feel we should do things well and there is no hurry. <laughs> right, right. Uh, Mr. Godrej, it's been a real delight uh, speaking with you. Uh, thank you so much for uh, joining us on the sketch. Thank you very much. It was a great pleasure. That's it from me for this episode. You've been listening to The Sketch. This episode was edited by Rajesh Jos and Sanju V. Abraham is our sound engineer. You can email us with your thoughts on the sketch at livemint.com. For more updates on this podcast, follow HT Smartcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube and LinkedIn. To listen to more such Mint podcasts, log on to htsmartcast.com. Goodbye and thanks for listening. To stay updated on this podcast, follow us at HT Smartcast on all the major social media platforms. To listen to more such podcasts, log on to www.htsmartcast.com. Hold up. 